Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to John chapter 18. And uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word, divinely inspired, communicated down through the ages for us, for our benefit. I pray, Father, this morning that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand what it is you have for each of us individually and for us as a church, as a body, Lord. Uh, We exist to glorify you, to bring glory to you. And we pray, Father, that you would be honored in this time. So we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in John chapter 18 for a while, looking at uh, the, the, the arrest of Jesus, the very beginning of it, where John gets right to it, and he summarizes a lot of things here that are expounded upon greatly in the other three Gospels, and yet John has a specific aim in mind, and that is simply the the theme of this book, is that you may believe, and that you may have life in his name. And so John is the evangelist in this Gospel. We need to keep that in front of us, because that's his purpose in writing these things. And so uh, as we've been looking at this, where Jesus was arrested in the garden, and then uh, with a great crowd of soldiers that was absolutely unnecessary, and then marched off to Annas' house, we saw the beginning of six trials that Jesus would go through before he would be crucified. We looked at five of them last week. I'm going to briefly recap them this morning because, uh, as you folks know, context is everything. We need to keep the context, again, right in front of us of these things. And to see that Jesus went through these six trials Each one of them was illegal. I I went into that last week and had a handout and stuff, so I'm not going to belabor that again, uh, except for here in the sixth trial that we're looking at. We're going to look at the sixth and final trial of Jesus' life here uh, this morning in John chapter, primarily in John chapter 19. But uh, as we go through this, you'll see that the beginning of the sixth trial is actually at the end of chapter 18. Remember, chapter and verse markings were added by man. And so this is a continuous narrative that that John is giving. So as we look at that, we saw the first trial that Jesus had was before Annas. Uh, Annas, if you remember, if you were with us, I'll I'll recap briefly if you weren't. Annas was a creep. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. He was was the guy that, uh, he, he was sort of like the mafia boss. If we were to translate that to the first century, he was the big kahuna. He was the big deal. And he was the one that was over. He had been a high priest, but he was removed from that office by the Romans uh, 17, 18 years prior to this. Uh, And yet he remained in charge of the priesthood, in charge of the high priest. He had five sons and a son-in-law whose name was Caiaphas, who would be uh, in line of these trials here. And Caiaphas was the the acting high priest. But Annas Annas was over everything. He was a really crooked guy. He was an evil man. And he also stood the most to lose of all of these guys, because what Jesus was doing by coming in and and teaching truth and what the kingdom of God was really like, not what their interpretations of the kingdom of God were like, but and so what he was doing was he was Jesus was actually threatening these guys' power base big time. He was disassembling their religious ideas, all of the the stuff and, and the accoutrements that go with religion which is still the case today, he was disassembling that and replacing it with truth. They didn't like it. They didn't like it at all because this was a huge money-making operation, the whole priesthood thing in Israel with all the national feasts, especially Passover. And it was also a way for them to control the people. They were the ruling elite, the Sanhedrin in Israel. So here he goes before Annas, and he's interrogated by Annas, and it's Annas doesn't find any that Jesus challenges him because Jesus gets hit by one of the soldiers by the palm of his hand and probably in the head, uh, you can assume anyway, and it would have been a very painful blow. And Jesus asserts his rights as, as uh, a Jewish person that was on trial and says, look, you've got to have some witnesses here. And Annas can't produce any because he never really levels a charge. And so Annas says, it says that he sends him away to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the legal one who could adjudicate his case. So after that, in chapter 18, we saw that we went through Peter's denials. And we looked at beginning before Annas' trial, 
and then on through the end of that, uh, it, we saw that, that Peter did indeed deny the Lord three times. And then he heard the rooster crow, and we're told in Luke that the Lord actually turned and looked at him. And I could have just imagined the, the piercing look. Not a glare, I don't think, but, but a, a very piercing look, like looking at Peter like, I told you this was going to happen. I told you that you wouldn't be able to hold up. And Peter was absolutely grieved. He was beside himself. It says he went out and he wept bitterly. He actually left the courtyard of the high priest at that time and, and went and, and, and was absolutely broken. And so then we come to the second trial before Caiaphas. And at this point now, the first trial with Annas was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And we're estimating times. I mean, you know, nobody says the times here. But going through the night, it's been estimated that these things took a certain amount of time. Distances that had to be covered because they're traversing all over back and forth across the city, old Jerusalem. And so this is now the second trial at about 3.30 in the morning. So he's on trial virtually all night long and up until noon the next day, getting shuffled back and forth with these guys trying to prove a case. And they're not able to. And they never would be able to. And he would be crucified again illegally to appease the Jews, not because there was anything that they could hang on him. So he goes before Caiaphas, and, and, and there he's mocked, he's beaten, he's blindfolded and struck in the face, say, and they say, prophesy to us, Christ. You know, who is it that hit you? And, and it says it in Luke that they committed many other blasphemies against him. So he, this isn't a small deal. Uh, it, it's, it's a big deal, and it's, they are incessant in their torture of this guy, of, of Jesus, as they go along. Again, none of this stuff was legal. He, there was nothing that they could level a charge on him with, but they were doing it anyway. And they were uh, essentially just manifesting the anger that they carried around for so long. I mean, this was not a new thing, this, this plot to kill this Jesus guy. This is something that they had, had, they had grated their teeth over for a long time. And now they figured they had their chance because Judas had done the whole betrayal thing. And now they had him. They had him in custody. And they're just unloading on him. Third trial, Jesus gets shuffled off from Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin, the ruling, again, the ruling body, uh, the religious ruling body in Israel. There was a puppet government under Rome because Rome was the oppressing uh, you know, the empire at that time. And, and Israel was a captive nation. And so they sent him off to the religious Sanhedrin. Now, this would be his third illegal trial by the Jews. There were three trials by the Jews, three trials by the Romans. The three trials by the Jews, absolutely guilty. The three trials by the Romans, absolutely not guilty. And that's how it comes out. And this is about 6 o'clock in the morning, the third trial before the Sanhedrin. And it says, the council there says, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you'll by no means believe. Remember, these are the guys that just a few days before, when Jesus came down into the city, off of the Mount of Olives, and came across into Jerusalem, uh, that, that the, the crowd that came out of the city and the crowd that came down the mountain with him, they, these two crowds converged. And as they converged, there was so much going on. And, and they said, rebuke your disciples. He said, if these become quiet, the stones will cry out. And then their remark was, look, the whole world is going after him. And so he has captivated this nation. He has captivated this people throughout this week, squaring off with the religious leaders every day in the temple, and now coming to this, where he's now before the council, and they really do think that they've got him. They've got him right where they want him. And the God of this world did as well. Uh, I mean, going all the way back to Genesis, where the, the first prophetic thing about the coming one who would redeem humanity was that he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. So they're thinking they've got Jesus right where they want him, not even completely unaware of the fact that this is unfolding exactly as Jesus was going to have it unfold. He's not out of control here, folks. He is not being held against his will. He could, with a breath, drop these guys and walk away. We saw over and over again in the gospel where he would simply walk away. He would walk right through the crowd when they were trying to seize him. And he's demonstrated over and over, right up to the garden when he, he says, whom do you seek? And he said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And when he says that, or he says, I am he, they're all knocked over. This whole Roman 
cohort and the religious, the temple guard and all the guys that came to arrest him. He, he knocks, he literally knocks them over, demonstrating that this is not something that they are doing to him. It's something that he is doing because his hour has come. It's time for him to take the cup. The cup of what? The cup of the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. And so here he is. He comes before, now in the fourth trial, he comes before Pilate for the first time. So Pilate, is, he's the governor of Judea. He's the guy that's the ruling Roman in the region at that time. He was also, he had married the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. So he sort of came into his position sideways. He, it wasn't something that he earned. It was something that he got by knowing people. And he was a very weak man. He had a very weak character. And we'll see that as we go along. Because if he had had strength, he would have stood up for the right thing when he had the choice to do the right thing and done it. Now, we know also that prophetically that these things had to take place in order for Messiah to atone for sin. And so we're not, I'm not taking issue with that. I'm saying that Pilate was accountable and he was accountable for the decisions he made. And we'll see that, too, as we go. So when he gets before Pilate, there's actually two conversations that take place in this first first trial before Pilate that are in chapter 18. The first is between Pilate and the Jews. And I'll just summarize the dialogue they had here. Pilate says, what accusation do you bring against this man? The Jews, their response is, well, if he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. Great. That's just, what a great accusation. I mean, that has a lot of teeth, doesn't it? And, and they're essentially asserting because they had gotten Pilate to go along with his arrest now they're expecting that he's going to sort of sideways let him come in and, and, and adjudicate their case for them because they know that they don't have the authority to have someone executed. And so Pilate says, you take him and judge him yourself. And so he's essentially saying, if you don't have an accusation, then don't bother me. Go just handle it. And their response is, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And we've looked at how Jesus prophetically in John chapter 3 had talked about the Son of Man needing to be lifted up. And, and so it, it, what, he, and what that was indicative, indicative of is, is that he was going to have a Roman execution. The Jews didn't lift people up. They threw rocks. The Romans lifted people up. The Romans put people on a cross. And, and so, again, fulfilling Jesus' own word here, it says that, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled in verse 32. So then... Pilate has another conversation, but this time he has it directly with Jesus himself. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he, because Pilate is seeing this guy, these guys have got, they are so worked up about this Jesus guy. And here this meek and, and gentlemanly and honorable, this person that does not fit their idea of what a criminal would be like is presented before them and, and, and before him. And he's trying to figure out, what do I do with this guy? There's something different about him. And, and I believe that Pilate in his heart saw that there's something very different about this Jesus guy. And as time went on and his wife bore witness to him, uh, he would see that that was true. So he, he can't reconcile. He says, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not from here. He says, not of this realm. Remember, we talked about the Greek word means on one side and then another. And, and what it's in indicating is the physical realm. Jesus says, I'm not from this physical realm. Uh, and, and, and Pilate says, okay, if your kingdom is not of this realm, then you're saying, are you saying, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say rightly that I'm a king. And he says, for this cause, I was born. And for this cause, I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And so Pilate, uh, at this point, I believe he's captivated. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with such authority a gentle authority and sometimes not so gentle, especially when squaring off with the religious leaders. But he spoke with such authority that he would captivate people. And Pilate says to him, he says, well, what is truth? Uh, dismissing Jesus at this point. Uh, and he goes out in verse 38. Pilate goes out now out of the Praetorium, which is where he ruled from, uh, probably part of the Fortress Antonia, which is off of the Temple Mount. He goes out again to the, to the crowd, to the Jews, and he says, I find no fault in him at all. So at this point, Jesus is acquitted. He says, not guilty. And at this point, again, John runs both of these trials of Pilate together. But from the other Gospels, we know that Pilate 
found out that Herod Antipas, he was the the ruler of Galilee, uh, that Herod was in town and he was staying at his residence there. And so Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod. And Herod gets all excited because it says in the other Gospels that he really wanted, he'd, wanted to, he'd heard about this Jesus guy and had never met him. And so he's excited to be able to meet him in a kind of a warped way. And so he listens to Jesus. He questions him thoroughly, listens to him. This is about 7 o'clock in the morning. And uh, when he's finished, he has nothing to say. He has no charge to level against Jesus, and he sends him back now to, to Pilate again. The sixth trial, and that's where we pick up the narrative this morning. Uh, I know that's a lengthy introduction, but again, you've got to realize this was bam, 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 bam. These things were happening. He's getting taken here, and this guy's saying, no, can't do anything. He's getting taken here. No, can't. Over here, no, send him back. And, and I mean, he shuffled around with him simply trying to find charges against him, and they can't. They've not been able to pin a single thing on him all night. So the sixth trial here, and the placement might vary, but most scholars agree that this break in the narrative in the Gospel of John is where Herod's trial came in. Uh, and so at the beginning of this sixth trial, you got to realize by this time, a multitude had gathered at the Praetorium. It wasn't just the religious leaders, but there was a huge crowd now of the, the citizens and people who were visiting coming for Passover. This would have been a really busy, busy time of year. And they, he's got a huge crowd now. It's morning. People are up, and they're wondering what all the ruckus is about, and they come out to the, the area around the Praetorium where Pilate is going to speak. Uh, and in verse 39, he says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, John's, again, he summarizes. There's a lot lengthier details of this account with Barabbas in the other Gospels. But we're going to look at some things there. He's trying to placate the, the people now. He's, he's saying, you know, you have this custom. And by the way, that custom is not mentioned in any other place. There's one, one deal off in the writings of Josephus, who was a secular historian in the first century, where he talks about another guy releasing some prisoners, but it's, it's kind of out in the backwaters. There's nothing else in God's word about this other than this specific instance. And so he says, you know, look, I can release a prisoner for you. He's trying to release Jesus at this point. He's, he doesn't even have Barabbas in mind. And it says in verse 40, they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. It says that Barabbas was a robber. So let's talk about Barabbas for a few minutes. Some really interesting things here about that. He was a seditious man. He was guilty. In other words, he was trying to incite rebellion against Rome. He was a political insurrectionist. He was also a murderer. And, and we'll look at some other attributes to this guy as we go here. But he was a notorious man. He was a notorious criminal that was essentially on death row. He was scheduled for execution. So the people say, not, not this man, but Barabbas. The crowd's response was not spontaneous. I want you to understand that. It's not shown here in the Gospel of John, but in Matthew 27, it says that the religious leaders were persuading the crowd. They were, they were inciting the crowd and getting the crowd worked up uh, during this time. As the crowd assembled at the Praetorium, Religious leaders went through the crowd, getting people worked up against Jesus. Uh, incidentally, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, uh, the fulfillment of this is happening at this point with Jesus. It says, he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, now understand the personal pronoun we, not they. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So he is being despised by not only the religious leaders, but now the crowd is getting worked up against him. This prophecy comes into play, uh, and it's we, not they. Because, folks, it's easy for us to look at this and point our fingers at those bad people in the crowd and those bad religious leaders, those Jews that are that are there. But you got to there was a... a, a a very pervasive ignorance in the hearts and minds of these people as to what they were actually doing. 
Jesus acknowledges that from the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand. They don't get it. And this is being played out. I mean, we know the end from the beginning. We all know the story and all of that. This is happening for these people. And as they're going through it, they're essentially reacting to the circumstances as they come. Now, as far as Barabbas goes, I want to look at this. And this is something interesting I found. And um, it's, you know, in, in the Bible, names mean everything. Names are strongly indicative of character. And this no, uh, I believe God in, in his sovereign will puts these guys with these names in specific places in the scripture to illustrate his own point and his purposes. I want you to understand in the Greek language, there are two words for father. This, bear with me. This will make sense as we go. The first is pater. It's where we get paternity or paternal. And that is, it's an impersonal father. Uh, the second is Abba, uh, the spirit within us, cries out Abba, father. And that means Papa in many cases, but it, what it is, it's a personal definition. So if I say they did a paternity test to determine if Bob was the father, so they do a paternity test, impersonal, to determine if Bob, Bob is the Abba, personal. Okay, do you understand the distinction there? All right, so. When we look at the Aramaic, Barabbas is an Aramaic name, and it's, it's a compound name. It's Bar, and in, in, in Aramaic, if you see that someone is Simon Bar-Jonah, it's Simon son of Jonah. Okay, so Bar is son of. The, the Hebrew is Ben, uh, but very common in Jesus' day. That was how they, they looked at the word Bar. It was identifying someone by their father. Abba is the personal name for father. So Barabbas, son of his father. Okay? And I think this is really interesting. Um, describing words about uh, adjectives that are used about Barabbas. He's notorious. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's a rebel. He's an insurrectionist. He's a prisoner chained to others of a like mind. All of that is from, I went through all the Gospels and preparing this, and all of those things really color this guy's character. Son of his father's character. Okay? In John 8, 44, Jesus, speaking to the religious leader, speaking to the unbelieving world in that sense, says, you are of your father, Peter, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is the liar and the father of Okay? There's some divine wordplay here with Barabbas. Uh, and it's, when the crowd chose Barabbas instead of Jesus, it reflected the fallen nature of all of humanity. The name Barabbas translates son of his father. They chose a false, violent son of his father instead of the true son of the father. Interesting. This prefigures the future embrace of the ultimate Barabbas, the one popularly called the Antichrist. When men will embrace the, the fake, men will embrace the imposter instead of turn to God. Now, about this point in the narrative, in the other Gospels, Pilate's wife pays him a visit. In Matthew 27, 19, it says this. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. In other words, nothing against him. That just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Interesting. So the, the pressure's mounting on Pilate. He sees something different about this Jesus guy. Now his wife comes and says, He's a just man. Don't do anything. You, know, you can't take it back. Have nothing to do with him. Let him go is essentially what she's saying. Chapter 19. Verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. He's still trying to placate the Jews. He, he's trying to get himself off the hook. He doesn't care about Jesus. He has a hatred for the Jews in general. But he's trying to sort of 
cover his own hide in that sense because the Jews are getting worked up and there's a, the crowd is getting very worked up and he's afraid of a rebellion breaking out with them, tells us in the other Gospels. But So what he does to try to placate them is he has Jesus scourged. Um, and this is horrible. He, what he does, he scourges an innocent and acquitted man. He had already acquitted this guy. But, but because of the pressure of the crowd, he takes him back and he has him scourged. Now, you know, I, I just have to stop here, folks. Never placate sin. There's a thing in our flesh. It's like, you know, if I, if I just, you know, involve myself in that a little more, then I can satisfy that lust or satisfy that inordinate desire and, and this is this is this is free the text but but i see this and i see what Pilate is doing he's if i just reward bad behavior enough they'll get off my back and it's admit to you that that never works it never works sin is sin and the lord says beat a hasty retreat from it don't don't tangle with it because pretty soon, if you're, if you're flirting with sin, it will have you. And that's what happened here with Pilate. So as he's being scourged, I'm going to talk about scourging for just a, a couple of minutes. And I almost didn't go down this road. And I'm just going to be transparent with you folks. I don't like it when people manipulate my emotions. I detest the sad puppy commercials on television. I don't know if you do, but it's like, oh my gosh, can they show a shaking dog any clear, you know? And they set that up. I mean, they, they set up, well, they got a camera crew there. And it's, oh, 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 you know, or, or then they have the, the, and I understand that children are starving, that, that pets are abused, and I'm not taking issue with that. I'm just saying that when it's purposely there to play on my emotions, I don't like it. I don't want to be manipulative or be manipulated. And, and I almost didn't go down this. I'm going to go into detail about the scourging that Jesus received, not because I want to manipulate your emotions, but because we, especially in the Western church, have a really airbrushed idea of what Jesus went through. And we do. I mean, you, you look, and I think that the Passion was probably the most accurate, that one that Mel Gibson did, what, 13, 14 years ago, when he actually showed what Jesus' flogging did. But, I mean, it was horrible. I, I the slides here. Um, a, a Roman flagrum. It's an interesting, interesting device. Uh, and not in a good way. It had metal, pieces of metal interspersed with pieces of either bone or uh, pottery. Uh, next slide, please. And it was leather. This is two different kinds here. They're shown. The one on the left is pot shards. And the one on the right is bone. And either one, what the, the idea was, was to weight this thing down with metal so that it packed a wallop and that when it struck, it would embed. And when they pulled it out, it would tear. All right? I'm going to read something to you here. Jesus received 39 lashes. That was the typical, that was the customary lashing, the, the scourging that was given that day. Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided lengths leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers known as lictors or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and the sheep bones or the potsherds would cut into the skin and sub subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the laceration, lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. 
pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. When they were finished with Jesus, he was very likely in shock. But they were also in a place where he knew that this was going to come. And, and he couldn't have prepared for this. I mean, you've got to realize, again, Jesus in his humanity is suffering all of this. At the hands of the soldiers. In verse 2 it says, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. His was a crown that cut, pierced, and bloodied the head of the king who wore it. This crown would stay on his head throughout the crucifixion. And they put a robe on him. The purple robe was, it was a cruel irony because purple was the most expensive color and, and kings were the ones who used it. Uh, and they put this robe on him, mocking him, verse 3, and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So now he's being beaten, struck. He is, his back has been lacerated open. His back has been laid open. There would be blood all over. Uh, he probably was swelling up from the, the blood he was enduring. And I mean, and, and you know, folks, I've said it before. And I, again, I, I just want to be sensitive here. When we look at the word of God, when we go through it, we're going to look at the, the good stuff. We're going to look at the bad stuff and the things in between. This is bad stuff. This is graphic. And I apologize, and yet I don't, because I, I want to airbrush this. I want to make it more palatable. But you want to know something? This is the effect of sin. As Jesus wears the sins of humanity, this is the effect. And it's no laughing matter. It's something that, you know, it, it's, again, that we need to have a well-adjusted idea of the things that he endured on your behalf and on mine. Because this is not a small deal. This is a man that is suffering horrendously at the hands of his captors. They say, hail, king of the Jews. They mock him even with the title. They give him a kingly title. Uh, and, and they're mocking he and the Jews. In, in, in a sense, he's saying, is this the best king you can come up with, really? So realize that Jesus endured these things in front of Pilate. The soldiers knew his hatred of the Jews, and they unloaded. I believe that they developed a pack mentality. You know what a pack mentality is? It's like I used to, when I go down to my daughter's house in Mesa, her home backed up to the open desert with saguaro cactuses and all that, and I'd watch the coyotes. If there was one coyote, it wasn't a big deal. But as the coyotes packed up, it was time to bring the dog inside for one thing. But they develop a pack mentality because together they, could, they, they would get into uh, this mentality. And when humans do it, it's a really nasty, ugly thing. Because these guys, they know that Pilate can't stand the Jews. They know that Pilate told them to flog him. So they actually start getting whipped up into their own frenzy. And they get into a pack mentality and they just unload on it. And, and I don't mean a little bit. Um, Something I've noticed in the business world with corruption as far as a pack mentality, sort of similar deal, is if a company is corrupt, it's corrupt from the top down. Uh, it's corrupt with the leadership. And the people on through the ranks see that the example that they have is that now they can take sort of this implicit permission to be corrupt themselves. Well, they see this with Pilate, and so they take implicit, implied permission to do the things to Jesus that they're doing. And Pilate doesn't have a thing to say about it. Verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to, him, to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. He keeps telling these guys he's not guilty. He told them in chapter 18, in verse 38, I find no fault in him. Remember, we looked at that last week when we were looking at the fact that Pilate unwittingly fulfilled prophecy for uh, the, 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 the land, the Passover land, 
on Nissan 10 and inspected for four days by the people before it was declared clean or clean and permissible for the sacrifice. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes into the city on the 10th and here before Pilate on the 14th, Pilate is declaring him without blemish. He is the Lamb of God coming to take the sins of the world away and Pilate fills prophecy without even knowing it. By saying, I can't find any fault in him. And as a judge, Pilate had the reason and the responsibility to set Jesus free with no punishment instead of subjecting him to the humiliation and the torture that he would endure. He made five attempts between the Gospels uh, to release Jesus. He's not doing it because it's the right thing to do. He's doing it because he's afraid of the crowd. He's doing it because he's in a vice. We'll see that as we go. Verse 5, And then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Again, dump the airbrushed idea of Jesus walking out with a robe and a crown of thorns, maybe a few little trickles of blood. No, this guy is, he is wiped out. He is probably barely able to walk, and, and that would fail him as he took the crossbeam of the cross, which we'll look at next time, but uh, he, there would have, he would have been, the, the, the robe would have been sticking to him and, and, and with large stains of blood soaking through. And again, he was probably disfigured because of the blows and the beatings that he had had at the hands of many by now, by this point, in the sixth trial. And when Pilate marches him out and says, here's your king, it's, it's a horrible mockery. And it's about as low as one can get as far as human interaction goes. Verse 5, Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man, beaten and mocked, blood, sweat, spit, all over his body. Perhaps Pilate was trying to make them feel sorry for Jesus. There would be no pity in this crowd this day. Verse 6, Therefore when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. Again, he asserts, I find no fault in him. And the crowd would follow their lead. Pilate's using sarcasm here. He knows that there's no way that they have the authority to execute him. But again, trying to dismiss the whole matter. You take him, you crucify him. And the Jews in verse 7 answered him saying, we have a law. Oh, okay, now they're going to try a different angle. They, have had, they haven't been able to bring any successful allegation against him this whole time. He says, we have a law. They say, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Because he made himself the Son of God. Now we're getting to their true charge. Not that he was a king of the Jews, but that he claimed to be the Son of God, which he rightly had. Jesus claimed equality with God, and they knew it. Their problem was not that he had asserted something wrong. Their problem was they had refused to believe. Therefore, Pilate heard that saying, when he heard that saying, he was the more afraid. The more afraid is exceedingly afraid. He was trembling at this point. He was considering this man whom he had been with for several hours now between the two trials. And he's looking at, he's thinking about his wife coming to him and saying, you know, hands off. This is a just man. Don't do anything foolish, Pilate. And yet he's getting worked over by the Jews. And every time he opens his mouth, the Jews have a response to him, and they actually apply more pressure and tighten the vice that he's in. And Pilate saw something in Jesus, even beaten, bloodied, and spat upon, that made him think that this possibly could be true, that the man before him was more than a man. Verse 9, and, when he, and he went again into the praetorium, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, Jesus had already told him where he was from. 
He said, my kingdom's not of this realm. But Pilate, he, he is, Pilate is, is, he's really trying to search for answers now. He's trying to find something with which he can defend him to the Jews. Uh, and so he says, where are you from? He's, he's wants more details because he wants to set him free. He's afraid to set him free. Jesus uh, doesn't answer him then. Uh, he says, and Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? What Pilate is doing to this point is nothing. And there's an old saying when I was in, in business management, the easiest thing to do is nothing. The worst thing to do often is nothing. And so Pilate, he's just been walking this line between not really wanting to put Jesus to death because he knows he's innocent. He knows that there's nothing that he can legally put to his account to, to condemn him. But he also knows that he's got a growing crowd of some very, very angry Jews that are demanding his execution. When he says, are you not speaking to me? The word me is emphatic. He's amazed that Jesus is not intimidated by his power. Uh, he had the power to do the right thing or the wrong thing. But uh, because the right thing to do here would have been to release him. But he's weak. He's afraid of the Jews. He's not a good leader. He is buckling to them and to their intimidating threats. This also, by the way, is fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now, Jesus does speak. He does have interaction with Pilate, but he doesn't make a defense. He is silent up until this point. And then in verse 11, Jesus does speak to him, but he notice he doesn't defend himself here. Jesus answers, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Essentially, what Jesus is doing here is telling Pilate who has the power. You know, your earthly power, Pilate, is puny. I mean, here is Pilate with God in the flesh saying, you know, do you, do you have any idea who you're talking to, Jesus? Do you have any idea how much power I have? I can have you killed or I can set you free. Aren't you impressed? And Jesus essentially says, really? No, you don't have any power other than what's been given to you. That's why he says the one that delivered me to you has the greater sin. Uh, and it doesn't say who the person was. Could have been Caiaphas, could have been Judas. Both of them delivered Jesus to Pilate. John is vague here. Verse 12, and from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, this puts Pilate in a panic. He's got his wife's dreams, his exposure to the Jews, the demands from the growing crowd, and now he's, he's looking at this and he's becoming fearful of Caesar himself. His wife's grandpa. Remember, there's a connection here, and he wants to preserve that. He wants to cover his hide. And so they're talking now. They're, they're threatening him with going to Caesar and showing Caesar what a creep Pilate is because he defended this guy that made himself a king, made himself out to be... Uh, the whole deal that, that they're, they're leveling against Jesus, now they're threatening Pilate himself. They're not just threatening Jesus, they're threatening him. They knew Pilate's weak point, and they pressed it, and they're pressing it here. Verse 13, And Pilate therefore heard the saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, what that means, what Gabbatha means, is it means an elevated place. So there was probably, most likely, there was a, a, a place, you know, like in courtrooms 
uh, they don't put the judge at the low spot and then the jury and everybody else up on the, the, the elevated spot. No, they do it the other way around. And that's on purpose. Because the now what he's doing here, he's going out to pronounce final judgment. Okay? He is ready to be done with this. The other Gospels tell us that he washes his hands. And he says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. It uh, doesn't tell us in John, but again, in the, in the other Gospels, it's very clear. He is convinced he's innocent. He's going to wash his hands of, of, their, of his blood, and he's going to go ahead and order So he goes up to this place called Gabbatha, this elevated place. Perhaps he walked upstairs and sat in the judgment seat. So they know, the crowd knows, this is it. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover. We're in about the sixth hour. That would be about noon. Remember, we looked at Jewish days were broken into 12 equal parts from sun up to sundown. In the summer, they had longer hours. In the winter, they had shorter hours because it was broken up into equal deals. So this is midday. The sixth hour would be noon. And we know that he would give up the ghost at three. And we'll talk about that when we get to the crucifixion. But uh, he... he says to the Jews, he says, behold, you're king. Again, mockery. It's an insulting irony. Here stands Jesus in a strange combination. And it really would have been a strange combination of misery, misery and dignity. Here he is, Messiah. Dignified. Miserable. Bleeding out. Dying before them. Verse 15, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And, and you can just hear the crowd raising their voice and getting more stirred up. And now they said that they're repeatedly doing that, repeatedly. It, it, this here, it's in the imperfect tense. It means they kept crying out over and over again, persistently, and they're pressing him hard. He says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The crowd's in a frenzy at this point. They choose Barabbas over Jesus, and now they're swearing allegiance to Caesar instead of to God. I came across something good I want to read to you. Isaiah's, or Israel's history has been fraught with pain and problems, and we know that as a nation it has. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel had rejected God and insisted upon a king. Here in John 19, we see Israel rejecting the son as they cry, We have no king but Caesar. In Acts chapter 7, Israel would be resisting the spirit as they stoned Stephen. Rejecting the father in the Old Testament, refusing the son in the Gospels, and res resisting the spirit in the book of Acts, caused the collapse of the people of Israel. And they would remain collapsed for nearly 2,000 years. But God is faithful. In Romans chapter 11, verse 12, we read this. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, that's you and I, how much more their fullness? Folks, God is not finished with Israel. We see that the nation kicked against him back in the Old Testament when they wanted a, an earthly king. We see that here they, in, in John they say, we have no king but Caesar. And we see that in the book of Acts they resist and they're pushing going out with the first martyr, with Stephen, as they're stoning him to death. And, and, and that was their failure. Their failure redemptive history was to grab a hold of the things that God had for them as a nation and individually and carry that to be a light unto the nations and they had been anything but and yet how much is the grace of God enduring in my life in your life if we see this through Israel's repeated failure through the repeatedly throwing off the will of God and God saying through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he's not finished. He still loves her. And he raised her, and he did. He raised her back up as a nation in 1948. And we see her now 
being prominent on the world stage, this tiny little nation that's, as, that's not even as big as some of the larger counties in our state. This tiny little nation on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, why would it be such a prefigured, have such a prefigured role in, in the events of human history and in the events that we see all the time in the news and, and with what's going on with her? Because she's still God's chosen nation. She is still his people. Yes, the church was grafted in. Yes, because of their failure, the Gentiles were added. Gentiles received the gospel because the Jews refused it. You've got to understand, this is all part of God's redemptive plan. And when we look at the grace of God, we do well to understand that his grace is poured out on that people, not saying it's okay, not validating their sin as a nation, but because he loves them as a people. And he loves you and I as a people. His, you know, when he says, I will remember your sins no more, not as far as the east is from the west, he means it. He knows our failures. He knows the areas that we're weak. He knows the things that we go through. He knows the trials that we endure. And his grace is poured out. His love is poured out. His mercy is poured out on your life and on mine. If there is a bright spot in all of this, it's that Jesus is headed to the cross to make all of this possible for you and I. Every bit of it. The free gift. Because of what he is suffering, we get to have eternity. And not only eternity, but we have the prospect and, and the ability to have an abundant and productive and meaningful life on this side of heaven. Wonderful. That's the gospel. That's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus that we love. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. As we've looked at these trials, at the arrest of these trials of Jesus, not easy, hard to stomach at times. And yet, in your divine providence, absolutely essential in accomplishing our redemption. Lord, words just don't even come close to the gratitude that wells up in my heart and our hearts for the work that your son accomplished at Calvary. Lord, let us never move away from the reality of what that cost him, what that cost you, your son, as we embrace the things of your kingdom, and as we step into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with you. Thank you. That's all we can say. It's the only response there is. We love you. We praise you this morning. Pray that you would go before the rest of our fellowship that you would have your hand upon us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.